Well, God bless you all. We are in a sermon series still yet, and we've kind of, even when Matt took a break last week, if you notice, he kind of uh, stayed in the same vein as it came to identity. And if, and if you've been in small groups, how many of you, you've been in small groups, you've kind of been enjoying what we've been going through. We've been going through a book together, and we actually just are, are finishing up that, that, that identity section. And moving even into our testimony. And that has a lot to do also with what we've been speaking about on Sunday mornings. And I've been in this sermon series myself called Grace Encounters. And this morning in particular, I want to speak a very important message. I think that it is also essential to knowing and understanding who we are in Christ. And I want to call it Beloved Identity. So if you would, let's pray together and then we'll jump right into it. Amen. Father, we are so grateful that we get to meet here in your presence together and we get to feast on your word. And God, that your spirit is present to teach us all things, to guide us into all truth. And we believe, God, that when your word goes forth, it accomplishes that which it goes forth to do. And so, Lord, let your word go forth in power with anointing this morning and let your spirit illuminate it to us. Jesus, break off every lie that we've believed about ourselves. Set us free from the demonic lies that enslave us, Lord Jesus, and let your word have its way in our heart so that we can be changed, we can be transformed. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. I want to start out by telling, telling you this story that I heard. I heard this story about a pastor in Salem, Oregon. His name was Robert Como, and this was several years back, uh, and he said that he was, he was wanting to volunteer at a local hospital, so he goes to the local hospital, he talks to the guy that's in charge, the chief over the hospital, he says, look, I want to I wanna spend some of my time here in volunteering, he said, what can I do? He said, well, you know, I don't really know what you can do, I guess, he said, there's a place that, down here that a lot of people don't necessarily like to deal with, it's room 37, and he said, I'd love it if maybe you'd just go in and spend an hour with these folks every week, and he said, well, that'd be great. So he walks him down this long corridor to room 37, and the door on room 37 has locks all the way up and down it, and he unlocks each one of them. And inside room 37, he said there were 37 psychotic individuals who had mental abilities that basically the hospital at this particular time had no idea what to do with them, so they just kept them heavily sedated and in this room. So he opens the door, he goes in, and they lock the door behind him. And when he walks in, he basically sees a scene of devastation. He sees 37 individuals who are mentally unstable. They're basically in a catatonic state. They can't communicate with one another. There's, there's uh, excrement and urine laying all over the floor. And he's thinking to himself, what do I even do in this situation? How do I even engage with these people? And finally, he prays and, and just in his heart to the Lord, the Lord says, I want you to sing to them. And so he walks into the middle of the room and he finds a spot where it's clean enough for him to sit. And he sits down in the middle of the room and he just begins to sing, Yes, Jesus loves me. And he sings that over and over and over and over again for one hour. And basically, no one even notices that he's in the room. He gets up at the end of the hour. The chief comes by, unlocks the door, opens him up and said, Man, that was great. We really appreciate it. Maybe you can come back next week. And he's like, Okay, I guess so. So he comes back next week and he's singing to himself, man, what am I going to do this time? Like, I don't even know how to engage with these people. And he says, he senses the Lord tell him, just sing to him again. So he, he gets with him, he sings the same thing again. And toward the end of the second day, as he's singing, yes, Jesus loves me to them over and over again, he says, a, a larger woman finally stands up and she walks over to him and sits down beside him and begins singing with him. And week by week, he comes back and he sings the same song. And week after week, more and, people, more and more people come to the center of the room and start singing this with him. And what was amazing about this is they said that by the end of six months, months all of those people were out of that particular room 37 and in a self-help ward. And by the end of the year, 36 of the 37 people were out of the hospital and worshiping in his church. Now... I thought, man, that's, that's a story that's almost too good to, I don't, I don't even know for sure if I believe this story. But the thing about this story is, is it means that they didn't just have an encounter with an intellectual idea that God loves them. Somewhere in that space, God filled that room and filled their hearts and they recognized the love of God for them. And there's transformational power in the love of God for an individual. They didn't learn a doctrine. He didn't come in there teaching the doctrine of love. He came in there and they had a real encounter with passionate love of God that transformed who they were. 
And so how does the head knowledge about, because everybody comes in here this morning, you know God loves you most likely. The problem is, is that most people know God loves them, but they don't live out of an experience that God loves them. They don't live out of the reality that God loves them. It doesn't feel real to them. So how does head knowledge become heart knowledge when it comes to the heart of the Father? And that's when love is communicated with passion. I want to say it like this, you know, when I can tell Andrea I love her as much as I want to. I can even tell it with a just like, I, as she leaves and she says, Clay, I love you. I can go, yeah, I love you, babe. Good deal. We'll see you. See you after work. You know, but that, that's one thing. But does that really communicate love? See, love is communicated when you're willing to go through suffering and you demonstrate and communicate love with passion. Like, for example, last night, Andrea looks at me. She says, Clay, you care to go in there and get me some chocolate ice cream, put it in a cup, and pour milk over it. Well, I was in a fully rested position <laughs> at this point. So I had to go through the suffering of literally moving my legs <laughs> off of the couch. And not only that, I had to go in, open the ice cream, and the stuff is hard when it's frozen, y'all. So I had to push hard. The, spin, the, the, the spoon bent in my hand. I dig it out, put it in the cup, pour milk over it, and take it to her while she's over there in the corner of the couch sleeping. And in that act, she said, now that's love right there. And I said, you're absolutely right. I went through suffering to make this, make this ice cream happen. But the point is that love is love when it's communicated with passion. And throughout Scripture, what you see, the word passion literally means to suffer. And encounters with Jesus throughout the Gospels, you read over and over and over again that Jesus chooses suffering in order to communicate love that transforms human lives. When he comes to the woman at the well, he basically enters into reputational suicide because he identifies with the outcast. He reaches out to the broken and his reputation is marred, but he communicates in that suffering to her a love that transforms her life. The woman that was caught in adultery is thrown in front of all the religious leaders and everyone. And Jesus once again identifies with the outcast, stoops down on her level, commits reputational suicide, and in that suffering communicates love to her that transforms her life. Zacchaeus, the same way, he says, I want to go and eat in your house, even though everybody else has rejected you, Zacchaeus. I want to take a reputational hit in order to go to your house and communicate a love through this suffering that will transform your life and you see reputational hit after reputational hit Jesus going through suffering not caring what people thought about him only to ultimately come to the cross where he enters into the highest apex of suffering his beating and his crucifixion and on that cross he reveals that I'm willing to go through anything out of my love for you and on the cross, he communicates just how much that he loves us. And when we ask the question, how much does God love you? You need to see Jesus with outstretched arms on that cross taking your place. And I know we become so familiar with this that somehow we become distant to it. And we know it as a doctrine, but we're not experiencing it as a reality of the love of God for us in our lives. I love what it says, 1 John. John, over and over again, and we're going to unpack this as we move on. But in 1 John, John identifies the people of God as the beloved. You notice that if you read the scripture over and over again. And he says in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, he says, Beloved, he always addresses them as beloved. He said, Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now I want you to notice this verse in particular. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In 1 John 3.16, he said, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And in John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And see, when you contemplate the cross, yeah, you may be trying to get your head around an intellectual idea, but there's a moment in every Christian's life, there should be a moment if you've not experienced it yet, where the cross becomes more than just a historical event that you read about in the Bible. It becomes an event where you realize that Jesus loved you so much that he chose to give his life for you. 
He thought about you individually. And he says, you are the object of my affection. You are the one I love. You are the reason that I'm taking this punishment. You're the reason that I'm committing this act because I love you so much. And when that head knowledge becomes heart knowledge, it begins to transform your life. 1 John 4.10 is the definition of love. He says, in this is love, not that we love God. You want to talk about love? Don't bring our weak efforts of how much we love God. He said, if you want to talk about love, don't start with us. Start with God. Start with how much God has loved us. And he says, and it's perfectly revealed in the fact that Jesus has become the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, it's a big word, but here's what it means. It basically means that every single one of us, we were deserving of death and hell and judgment and wrath. And all of that was running at us full force. And God in his great love says, I don't want them to experience that. I want them to know my love. And in that act, he comes and he steps in our place and he absorbs every bit of that judgment, every bit of that wrath, every bit of the penalty, every bit of the punishment so that only he can pour on you is the grace and the love that he has for you in Jesus Christ. This is how much God loved you. This is essential to what we believe as Christians. And in, for 1,500 years, if you remember, we've talked about this, for 1,500 years, the Jews were under the law. And if you remember, he says, look, here's the, su the sum total of the 613 laws of God. Jesus says, if you want to sum all the law of God up, he said, it's summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. You want to sum it up, it's about loving God and loving others. Amen. So then Jesus comes and he basically on the Sermon of the Mount, he preaches the law one last good hard time, but he intensifies it. He says, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. He intensifies the law and they're all sitting there broken because they're like, man, how can anybody keep this stuff? And he's trying to point out the fact that the law was not given so that you could learn how to love God flawlessly. He said the law was given so that you could learn that you can't love God flawlessly. That it's not about your love. It's not about your ability. You need to recognize your need for a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And that's what transforms our lives. So he comes off the mountain and what does he meet off the mountain after he's preached this to men and women? He meets a man that is covered up in leprosy, the living symbol of sin, which represents our brokenness in our sinfulness, that we're eaten up with this stuff. We're eaten up with sin. We're rotting internally. And he falls down at Jesus' feet. Jesus cannot touch him because it would break the law. He's not even allowed to be there, but he says, Lord, if you are willing, not if you can, if you are willing. His, he questions whether or not God loves him enough to actually cleanse him in his broken state. And the Lord says, I am willing. And he takes, he makes a love act. In his, he reaches out, breaks the law, and touches this man with leprosy and brings cleansing into his body. And in that transformation, you see the love of God unleashed to people that realize, man, we cannot do this on our own. Jesus is saying, I know you can't keep these laws on your own, but if you will let me touch you, I can cleanse you. If you will have an encounter with my love, I will change your heart. I'll change who you are from the inside out, and you will know my love, and it will change who you are. An encounter with Jesus is an encounter with love that will actually set you free. I remember my first personal encounter. Y'all probably heard it a thousand times if you've been here in any in any high rate at all but I remember my first real encounter with Jesus trying so hard to quit the sinful patterns of my life only to fail over and over and over again but when I came to the end of myself and I cried out and the Holy Spirit came in power and revealed Jesus to me I thought God would be so angry at me in the same moment that I realized my wickedness and my brokenness and my sinfulness is the same moment that hot liquid overwhelming love was poured out on me and that broke the power of sin off my life and it was the thing that sustained me. I didn't stop sinning and stop down these, these horrible paths because I said, man, I need to try to do better. No, I stopped and, I, and that was cut off at its root because I realized how much this God loved me and I wanted to maintain that fellowship with a God that loves me that much. I didn't want to do anything anymore that would grieve him because I wanted to experience that love because it was better than any, any drug I'd ever had, any sex I'd ever had, any moment I'd ever had in that life did not measure up to that love of God. I realized in that moment that love was all that I was actually looking for and I found fulfillment in it. 
That's why 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. I never was truly ever, ever able to reciprocate the love of God that I wanted to. I was always coming to him wanting something from him until I realized how much he loved me. And then all of a sudden something was birthed in my heart and I realized, God, I love you so much. But it came from his love for me. This is what God's, this is what the world is actually really craving is God's love and acceptance. And when they don't find it, they seek for it elsewhere. People are seeking for all kinds of things, but what they really need is the love of the Father. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So you see this progression in John. He basically says nobody could keep the law, but Jesus came. And not only did Jesus as a man love God flawlessly, but Jesus as God also loved us flawlessly. No human being was ever able to do that until he comes. He fulfills the law and he shows up and you see this progression. And John says, no, you realize that God first loved you this much that he gave his own life for you. And when you understand that he died so you could become a child of the living God, that you could have a new identity, being forgiven, being cleansed, being washed, and being tied to the Father in reconciliation. And all of a sudden, out of that new identity, guess what? You're so transformed internally that his commandments are no longer burdensome. And you now have the internal power to keep them. And that love is actually revealed because you find it easy to keep his commandments does that make sense that he's flowing this love is flowing through us to come to this and if you if you talk about Jesus I love this story in the Bible and you probably do too but if you talk about Jesus when he tries to reveal the love of the father most clearly I believe that he does it in a parable that we know to be called the prodigal son you guys are familiar with it right like the son says he's about to make like a million he knows his daddy has got a million dollars in the bank and he says you know what dad I love you and all but I know what I'm going to do with that million dollars, and I would appreciate it, really, if you would just go ahead and drop dead so I could take the million dollars and go do what I need to do right now. The father says to the son, look, son, if that's what you want to do, you're going to bring shame on me, you're going to bring shame on the family, but if that's what you want, I will release you to it. And in one essence, that is what biblically the New Testament wrath of God is, is that when we say, God, we don't want that, we want this, he says, okay, son, go ahead, and he hands us over. And he goes in the direction against the grain of love. And he basically takes all this money and he goes and he spends it on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, essentially. And all of a sudden, once he's spent all of his money, a famine hits the land. He doesn't know what to do. So he gets a job working with some pigs and taking care of pigs in the pig pen. But the famine is so severe that he ain't even got nothing to eat. So he finds himself face down in a pig pen eating food in the pig trough. And at rock bottom, he says, you know what? I'm going to go back to my dad's house and I'm going to ask him if he will have mercy on me not to be a son once again, not to have the inheritance because I've already spoiled that, but just to be a servant. And maybe if I work hard enough as a servant, I can earn my way back into sonship. That's what religion is, y'all. That somehow you can come to God and work hard enough and do enough right things and be a good enough person to earn your way back into sonship. Religion says you need to earn your way into sonship, but Jesus Christ says, no, I give you that by my grace freely. It's an identity that I want to give to you as you are now so that you begin to function from it rather than living and striving and competition and trying so hard to earn something that God's already given you in Christ. But see, that's what it says, this idea that human endeavor and striving, you can somehow earn the identity that God wants to give you freely by grace. So he comes up with his speech. He says, I'm going to tell him, you know what, Dad? I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired servant. And you know the story. The, the father sees him coming a great while off. He girds up his loins. Whatever that means, I love it. He, he, ta he takes off running. He takes off running with his robe pulled up and he falls on the sun away off away from the house. He falls on his stinking neck with pig slop all over him, kisses him, says put a robe on my son, put a ring on his finger which represents righteousness and sonship. Put new shoes on his feet to say that you are one of us, you're a part of the family and you're walking with us. And then he says strike up the band, kill the fatted calf, we're going we're gonna to celebrate, we're going to have a party because my son that was lost has now returned home. 
Now, we hear that story. We know that story. But there's some things in this story that I bet you don't know that you're not aware of that will help you make much, much more sense of what's really taking place here. Because you need to understand the mindset of a first century Jew that would have been listening to this story. Number one, you need to understand this, that throughout the Old Testament, Israel has a title. It's God's son. If you remember... When God sends Moses down into Egypt, he tells Pharaoh, Hey, let my, Israel is my firstborn son. I'm telling you to let them go. And at the end, you remember, if you're not going to let my firstborn son go, then I'm going to take your firstborn son. Israel's name is the firstborn son of God throughout the Old Testament. And what you see is that firstborn son of God over and over again rejects the father. They reject the father and the father is calling them back, but they never return and they continue to rebel against him and worship false gods. What ends up happening is what? They are sent into a far off land, into a place in Babylon where essentially they're enslaved and eating from the pig trough. They're surrounded by false gods and they've wanted to come back for so long and many of them are in semi-exile. In Jesus' time, There's a bunch that have returned to Israel, but they're not fully reconciled to the Father because they are under Roman oppression. And they realize that Jesus is telling their story. We are the Son of God. We did leave our inheritance. We worshiped false gods and we were sent to a far off land in Babylon. We've wanted to come back to the Father, to be restored to the Father, to be back under His blessing and up under human flourishing, but we're still not connected. And here's what they would have known. Here's what they would have been waiting for. And this is something called the Kezazah ceremony. They would have thought at this point that Jesus is about to give us some very bad news. As the story is developing and they find the son in the pig trough, they thought, you know what? Jesus is about to tell us that God the Father is going to cut us off because of the way that we've been. Because they knew about this thing called the Kezazah ceremony. And you can look this up. It's a very, it was throughout Jewish history. It was done time and time again. But when a son took the father's inheritance, shamed the family in any way, and left, when he tried to come back, the entire community would meet that son out at the front of the doorstep and they would take a clay pot and in front of that son they would smash the clay pot in front of him to basically say this is our relationship. It's shattered, it's broken, and it's irredeemable. This pot cannot be put back together. And kezazah means cut off. It's interesting because in the Greek language, you know the word we use, ostracize. Like if we go cut somebody off, we ostracize them. It's from the Greek word ostracon, which literally means broken clay pot. Because they developed that word out of this ceremony that when you shamed your family, when you shamed your father and you come back, we was breaking a clay pot to say, you ain't coming back, bro. This is it. It's over. So they're waiting for that moment for Jesus to tell them that this is what's going to happen to them. But instead they get a different story. They get a story about a father that is not breaking a clay pot, but a father that runs to them in love. And here's the third thing you need to recognize is that in the first century, Jewish dignified men, they would never run. They weren't going to pull up their loins because they were not going to expose their legs. They were too dignified to run. Little boys ran. You know what I'm saying? Maybe some kids ran, but Jewish dignified men did not run. But why did the father have to run? By running, he would have humiliated himself. But why did he have to run? Because the father knew, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach, the father is trying to get to his son before the community sees him because he does not want his son experiencing that broken pot of you're cut off, you're not welcome here. He wants him to know before anybody else can lie to him and tell him that you're not welcome, that I am the father and I love you and I've always been waiting on you and I've waited for this moment for so long for you to be reconciled to me. He beat, they're sitting on the porch with a clay pot saying, yeah, we about to bust this thing. And he takes off running and says, no, you ain't. Because before you can get to him with the busted clay pot, I'm getting to him with a robe of righteousness. I'm getting to him with a ring of sonship. I'm getting to him with a new pair of shoes. And I'm going to have somebody over here, one of my servants, kill the fatted calf, which is a representation of Jesus dying on the cross. And I'm going to strike up the band and we're going to party. And I'm not letting my son for a moment think that he has to earn his way back into my goodness and my favor and my love you don't have to earn your way back when you're a son you're a son you're a daughter you may have failed you may have been broken but the love of God the father is so strong that he'll pursue you at any cost and that's exactly what he does because instead of his son being humiliated the father takes the humiliation of the son you understand that 
The father takes the humiliation of the son. And so here's the thing. When we see the cross, we should be overwhelmed with this sense of I am loved by the father. And that is how he has communicated his love to me with passion. That needs to be a reality in our life. And here's the thing. So many Christians believe that God is loving. And they believe that God loves them, but they don't feel loved. And they're constantly got these bulletins. They have these bulletins in their life of how many times they failed and how they're not a good enough Christian. They don't pray enough. They don't read enough. They don't do it. Let me tell you something. You don't pray and read to earn something from God. You pray and read because you're in love with God and you want to spend time with the one who loves you. It's a totally different mindset. Well, I don't read enough. No, well, the reason you're not reading enough or you're not doing what you feel like you need to be doing is somewhere you've gotten it wrong and you slipped into a pattern of religion where you think you need to do something to please God. He's already pleased with you. What he wants is your intimacy. What he wants is, is, is the relationship. We're not try, I don't need to read more to earn God's favor. I read more because I want to know more about how much he loves me in his scripture. I want to know much more about what he's telling me to walk in. I want that relationship with him. I love what Martin Luther says, this quote. He says, Christians aren't loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. Think about that. Christians aren't loved because they're attractive. They're attractive because they are loved. You know who you are, the beloved of God. And I'm telling you, you have such a secure identity in that reality that it actually attracts people to you and to God. And John is constantly using this term beloved when addressing Christians. Beloved, beloved. That means you're the loved one. You're the one who God loves. You're the one that God cares for more than anything. And if you, if you, if you heard any history, do you know of all of Jesus's original disciples all of them were martyred and killed and did not die natural deaths except for one and that was the apostle john the one who knew himself to be the beloved of god tertullian a guy in history says that this is what happened with john he says finally domitian uh the, the roman emperor persecutes john brings him into a, a, a small coliseum and basically says look you need to renounce your faith in christ or we're going to boil you in this pot of oil he says, no, no, I'm not going to renounce my faith in Christ. He is my king, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, and he loves you. Domitian gets angry, dips him in a boiling pot of oil. They pull him up assuming that he'll have flesh melting off of his body and he'll finally renounce his faith in Christ. But when he comes out of the boiling oil, he is unharmed, and it frightens Domitian and everybody else so badly, guess what he does? They send him and exile him out to the Isle of Patmos. And on the Isle of Patmos, you know because it's the book of Revelation, he says, I was on the Isle of Patmos, sent there by Domitian because they could not boil me in oil because I was covered in the love of God. And while I was out there, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and Jesus revealed himself to me. And he showed me things which are which, and, and which will be to come. And not after that, not long after that, they bring him back out of exile. And he comes in and he finishes his life. In his early 90s, they say that he passed away of natural causes. And they would walk him in and sometimes carry him into the church in Ephesus. And he would just say over and over and over again, little children, love one another. He was the disciple. He was the apostle of love. He understood the love of God for him, and it changed who he was. In John 13, 1 through 5, this is when Jesus and the disciples are all together at the Last Supper. And it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended... The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his, the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, I want you to understand... He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. But only those who are secure with who they are can actually stoop down to serve. Only those who are secure 
in who, when you're not secure in who you are, you're always striving. You're always trying to one-up somebody. You're always wanting the attention. But when you're secure in who you are, you're not trying to compete with anybody else. You're not trying to pull anybody else down. You know who you are in Christ. You know where your affirmation comes from. You know where your approval comes from. And because you know that ultimately I'm fulfilled in the love that God has for me, I'm not craving attention from anybody else. Therefore, I can stoop down and serve others and come up underneath them. This is what Jesus reveals. And I love what it says. He says in John 13, 37, as they're at the table, Jesus says, one's going to betray me. I'm going to go away. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for your sake. And you start to see this, this, this kind of dichotomy in Scripture because Peter is focusing on constantly his self-effort and his ability to complete the commandments of God and do what God is telling him to do. I'll, I'll go with you to the I'll lay down my life for your sake, he says. And in contrast, in, in, in verse 23, it says, Meanwhile, while Peter is basically doing this, there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, I love this because you know who wrote that? John wrote it. You know who is, who, who is leaning on his bosom, the one whom he loved? John is. Three times in his own book, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, do you think that Jesus loved John any more than he loved any of the rest of them? Absolutely not. He didn't love, all of them had claim to know that they were the beloved, but John was the only one that had this revelation that I am the one that, lo that, that is loved by Jesus more than anybody could ever imagine. And he had that revelation, and because of that, he had a nearness to him. He knew who he was to Jesus. He knew that he was loved. He knew that he was cherished, and he identified himself according to that love. People in the world today are identifying according to all kinds of stuff. I heard tell somebody was identifying as a cat the other day. But what I need you to understand is that what we need to identify as is the one whom Jesus loves. That's what God's called us to identify as, that we are his beloved. We're the one that he would go to any length to bring freedom to. We're the one that when he saw us in our sin and in our shame, he said, I am willing to go and suffer the full penalty of sin and the weight of the cross in order to demonstrate my love for that one. And this is who John says he is, and I love it. Because if you remember, Peter ends up denying Jesus. Three times he denies him. He says, oh, I'll, I'll die for you. But he ends up denying him three times. Why? Because he's focusing on his own ability. He's focusing on his love for God, which is weak at best. And because he's so self-centered and he wonders, he's still trying to earn Jesus' love. He's still trying to earn Jesus' approval. But John knows about Jesus' love and approval. Peter denies Jesus three times that night that he's crucified. John is the only disciple at the foot of the cross while Jesus is hanging there on the cross. And while he's hanging there on the cross... Jesus looks down at him and says, John, your mother, mother, your son. And he entrusts John with his very own mother because he knows that John knows who he is. And he's sitting there resting on Jesus, completely focused on his love for him that night that Jesus was betrayed, that night that he was handed over to crucifixion. And you really see this contrast, like I said, between Peter and John. It's interesting because their names even show up this way, and I think I've shown you this before, but Peter, his name was, was originally Simon, and Jesus changed his name to Peter, and, and he said literally, because it, it means stone, or it means rock, and he says, upon this rock I will build my church. But also, a rock or stone represents the law, because the law was written on stone. It was written on, the law of God was written on stone. And so when you look at the law, you look at self-effort, and I'm trying to love God as much as I possibly can. John, on the other hand, has a different, and his his name literally means God's grace. Yahweh is gracious. And it represents the new covenant, the grace of God. And see, he's not trying to love God more. He's empowered by receiving God's love for him. It's a totally different way of looking at your relationship with God. You're not trying to earn from God. You're not trying to just constantly get God's approval. No, you're recognizing just how much God loves you. And from that place, from that beloved identity, the works of God, the commandments of God overflow through you. It's a totally different way of looking at things. And so Peter, deep down, he sensed a distance between him and Jesus. But John sensed a nearness. And in 1324, because of that, they want to know who betrayed Jesus. And Simon Peter motioned to John and said, Hey, who is it he's talking about? Peter sensed this distance, so he asked John. And John, leaning back on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. I want you to understand this. When you have a relationship with God, you come into the presence of God, you're not constantly weighed down with the burden of whether or not God accepts you or not. You can't hear God in those situations. You're, you, you want to talk to the pastor because you think he's closer to the Father than you are. Jesus gives us that same nearness. Now, yes, can we walk in deeper intimacy with the Lord through a practical daily life? Yes, absolutely. But can I tell you that there is nothing holding you back from a deeper intimacy with Jesus? And if you realize how loved you are and you go into that place knowing, man, I'm loved by God, all of a sudden your spirit is open to hearing more of what God has to say. You don't have to come and ask the pastor because you're hearing from Jesus yourself. And Peter says, John, will you talk to him? You're close to him. We're not quite as close as you are. But John is overly conscious of God's love. And when you're conscious of God's love for you, I'm telling you, when we come into a, a church service, I know a lot of times we leave feeling differently about different things. Sometimes we're deeply convicted of sin. That's one aspect of God's love. Sometimes we feel beat down, though. I get that. Sometimes church services don't go great. Sometimes maybe I preach a little too hard. We feel a little bit beat down. I don't know. But, but what we need at the core of our being, is, is to leave knowing I am loved by my Father more than I could ever imagine. And when, you are, you, when that happens, you are so secure that you are empowered to be filled with the Spirit to live a different life week to week. And Jesus sets the precedent for us because if you remember, Jesus enters into the baptismal waters. You remember when Jesus gets baptized. John said, look, are, we, are you going to baptize us? Like, like... We shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. He says, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And what he's saying is, when I enter into these baptismal waters, everybody who enters in after me is going to have this new identity in me. And then when he enters in, what happens? The heavens are split apart. The, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And there's a voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In that moment, he gives him identity. He gives him approval. He gives him affirmation. He gives him all of those things that he's craving as a human being. And the beautiful thing about this is, is that he says he's well pleased with him before he does one miracle, before he dies on the cross, before he's even entered into ministry. And my thought would be, well, what's he, what's he got to be pleased with? Jesus hasn't done anything yet. For 30 years, he's just been a carpenter. No, for 30 years, he has had intimacy in relationship with the Father. What is the Father pleased with? Jesus' intimacy. He doesn't want your accomplishments. He doesn't want your success. He doesn't want your powerful ministry. He wants a relationship with his son or with his daughter. And that's what pleases the Father. And when you have that at the core of your being, success flows out of it, yes. Accomplishments flow out of it. Transformation flows out of it. But when you don't have that and you're trying to get all those things, you are deeply, inwardly broken on the inside, craving something that you can't get through religion. Jesus rested in the Father's approval. He didn't live in competition. Matter of fact, when people didn't like him, he just let it fall off. i got to be honest with you. When people don't like me, when people say bad things about me, when my rep reputation takes a hit sometimes, it aggravates me, y'all. And you know what I have to go back to? Into the loving arms of the Father to say it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they think. Ultimately, what I'm living out of is what you say about me, God. And that love overflows and cleanses me and washes me and gives me a peace so that I don't have to live for others. I can live for the Father and love others. Man, that's a freedom. That's a freedom that only God can bring in Jesus Christ. Now he's heard this voice and it's so interesting because you remember the first temptation of Jesus. What when Satan comes, he comes to Jesus in Luke 4, 3 and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The first thing Satan's going to attack in your life is your identity. And right here when he says this, he makes him question whether or not he's the Son of God. But if you'll notice, this is right after the Father has just said... You, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What word does he leave off? He leaves off the word beloved. The last thing Satan wants you to know on any level is that in this moment, in your moment of weakness, in your moment of temptation, in your moment of even failure, is that God loves you. Satan will never allow you, he, he, he will never make the mistake of even letting you think that somehow God might love you. He wants you to always focus inward. Prove you're the son of God. I don't know if God loves you or not. 
Maybe if you do this and he'll demonstrate that he'll protect you, then we'll know that he loves you. He's trying to slip him back into that mentality of working to figure this out. And he's constantly working to accuse and make you think that God's disposition toward you is literally anger and hatred and disapproval and basically that God's just aggravated at you. The last thing that he does is love you. But I love what 1 John says in John 2.15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Notice what it says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he lists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all these things in the world. But here's what I always, I always read that to say. If anybody loves the world, they don't love God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if anybody's in love with the things of the world, they have not yet received the love of the Father for them, and they're still craving that love. And because they don't have it, they're pursuing the lust of the flesh, thinking they can find it in sex. They're pursuing the lust of the eyes, thinking that they can get more money and material wealth and feel better and feel, feel more loved and feel more successful. And they're pursuing the pride of life, trying to reach some status where they feel approved and think, I'm good enough. And he's saying, no, if you love those things and you're pursuing those things, you've not yet realized just how much God loves you. It breaks off your pursuit of those things. And that's so important. Now, I'm going to finish basically with this last story. But Peter has denied Jesus. He's failed him. And if you remember, Jesus dies on the cross. He's raised again on the third day. And on the third day, when Jesus is resurrected, angels, they show up to Mary at Jesus' tomb. And one says, look, he's not here, Mary. He's risen. And then he adds this in Mark 16, 7. He says, go tell his disciples, and notice this, and Peter, that he's going before you into Galilee. Now, why would they add and Peter on there? I think it's because Peter knew that he, was, he had failed. He knew that he, had dis, he was disqualified. Matter of fact, he actually heard Jesus say out of his mouth that if you deny me before men, my heavenly Father will deny you before his heavenly angels. Like he, re, he, he heard Jesus say that. So he's thinking, you know what, boys? You all go and show up in Galilee, but, but I, ain't, I ain't there. This is for the people that stuck with Jesus. This ain't for the people who denied Jesus and failed him. I don't want to go, but the angel, make sure to let them know. Now tell all the disciples and make sure Peter ain't going to back out either. Because we know he's at his lowest. We know he's crushed. We know he's worn out, beat down, thinks Jesus hates him. And if Jesus shows up, he may slap his brains out. Amen. I mean, sometimes I, you, feel, you feel that way as a human being, don't you? I just, think, I just think sometimes if I showed up before the throne of God, God would look at me and just slap my brains out. <laughs> and maybe I would do that. Maybe that's how I feel about myself, but that's not how Jesus feels about me. It says Peter, he finally he gets there to where they're supposed to be going because they want to go down to the Sea of Galilee, and they're waiting on Jesus. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, boys. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. They're depressed. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing, added to the depression. And here's the thing. Peter has always lived striving, competing, comparing, trying to find his identity in being the best. I mean, you see him always measuring up against everybody else. Who's who going to sit at your right hand, Lord? Always trying to be, oh, I'll go to the end, but I'll die for you, Jesus. Always boasting in his ability, in his performance. And at this point, he has so failed Jesus in the kingdom of God. He's now forfeiting his destiny to go back to the only thing that he thinks he can find some approval and worth in. He said, you know what? Before I was a follower of Jesus, I was a fisherman. At least people thought I was all right back then. I'm going to go back to what I'm comfortable with. I'm going to go back to what I got some identity in. I'm not too big of a failure in fishing. I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm going to find my identity in that. Jesus, I know he don't want me anymore. He's probably just coming here again to slap my brains out. And so I'm going to go back. Because shame and false identity will always cause us to return to places of familiarity. I want you to think about this. Jesus is back from the dead with limited time. And what's on his heart? I mean, you just got raised from the dead. I don't know. I'd be doing a lot of stuff. Like I'd showed up to Caesar Augustus' son and probably slapped his brains out. Yeah. Good thing I'm not the Lord, ain't it? He's back from the dead with limited time and what was on his heart, finding Peter to make sure he was reconciled, to make sure he knew that he was restored, that he was forgiven, 
In John 21, 4, it says, When the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? I love this. I read this in the Greek one time, found out that children was masculine, diminutive. And what that means is he literally said, Hey, little boys. I love that. I mean, because you imagine Jesus just saying, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey guys, you got any food? He said, hey little boys, you got any food? He just, he just messing with them. The resurrected Jesus. And they're like, who's that punk over there calling us little boys? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, notice this, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. The disciple whom Jesus loved was the first one to recognize it's Jesus. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea, just like Peter. He, the first, he ain't going to wait for the boat to come up. John just sat back there, relax. He loves me if I don't plunge in, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, Peter, golly, he ain't ever going to get it. And John, and John just sitting there relaxed. You know what I'm saying? There's something about being loved that makes you relax. Something about being loved that gives you peace. Peter's still freaking out. He's still trying to prove his love. He's like, you know what? Forget this. I'm plunging in. I got to show him. And he plunges in, swims to shore. And I love this because... How does God treat you in your failure? How, when you failed and you think, man, God's got nothing for me right now, how does God treat you in your failure? Is he harsh? Does he yell at you? Does he ignore you and focus on others? Some, some of us would think that if they were in Peter's position, he would have showed up and just been like, give, give Peter the cold shoulder. Let me talk to these boys a minute. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to talk to you right now, Peter. Maybe give him the cold sh shoulder. Maybe holler at him. Maybe chew him out. Maybe give him a voice of condemnation. But Peter takes a risk. He stops slowly moving away from God and he takes a plunge and he runs toward him. And Jesus has got like a charcoal fire. I like Jesus, man, because he's resurrected from the dead. He's got about 40 days and he's just taking his time cooking fish, you know. And he's sitting there with a charcoal fire. And this is very interesting because the charcoal fire that he's around at this particular time is, is very similar to the charcoal fire. Matter of fact, it's only mentioned twice in Scripture. And the other time that it's mentioned is when Peter denies Jesus around a fire that night. He's recreating the moment that Peter denied Jesus. And he's cooking him fish here around this charcoal fire. And when he sits down in John 21, 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now I want you to notice the word love here because each time it says love, they actually use a different word. One is agape, one's phileo. Agape is self-sacrificial, self-giving love. The love we've been talking about when we said that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for us. It's that love. But phileo is a love like, I love you like a friend. You're a friend of mine. I don't know if I'm willing to die for you, but I sure do have some affection for you. You know what I'm saying? And he says, do you, are you, do you have that kind of self-sacrificial love that you talked about the night you betrayed me? And do you love me more than these? And I think he's actually talking about the fish. Because I think he's saying, I know you feel like you failed, but you've been finding your identity your whole life in being a fisherman. And are you saying and you telling me that you're going to go back to that and love that and, and find your identity just because you failed in that moment? You're going to slip away from me and everything that I've called you to be and go back to fishing. Jesus saying, do you love me more than these? And in verse 15, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses a shortened version of form. He uses phileo. He says, you know I love you like a friend. Because he knows, no, that's not the kind of love that I loved you with. I didn't demonstrate that. He said to him, feed my lambs. And so you see this beginning to play out. And, and, and Peter's saying this because he's saying, no, it's not about... I know, Jesus, I didn't lay my life down for you like I said. I saw you, though, and you laid down your life for me. In verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you, do you have self-sacrificial love that you talked about for me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I only have a friendship type of love for you. He said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you just love me like a friend? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me this way? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you in this weakened friendship kind of way. I don't have the kind of self-sacrifice that you demonstrated for me. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, was Jesus being mean here? Was he just putting, putting in the womb? Do you love me, Peter? Because it sure didn't look like it. Is that what he's doing? No, that's not what he's doing. He's walking him back through a positive confession of his love for Jesus because he denied him three times. And he's warning any inner healing to take place so that that no longer is rooted in his identity, that his failure doesn't make him who he is. You're going to become something new, Peter, but I need you to renounce what you did and so that doesn't lock into your identity as the one who denied me. I want you to be the one who loves me enough to feed my sheep, but I need you to understand a few things about this. And here's, here's lastly, I want to finish by this. In, this. in this conversation that they're having, here's what Jesus is saying. Number one, he's saying your failure and your wound does not determine your future. Just because you failed, just because you messed up, it doesn't determine what God still has for you in your future. Number two, you now see that it's not about your love for me, Peter, but it's about my love for you. You didn't have that self-sacrificial type of love. Nobody's ever had that type of love that they needed to have, but I demonstrated to it to you on the cross that I'm the one who lays down my life for you. And then he says, you know what, Peter, your identity is not going to be in your accomplishments. It's not going to be in your ability to go with me unto death. It's not going to be in your success or even your failures. Your identity is grounded in my love for you that will chase you down regardless of where you are or where you've been. And then lastly, beloved identity enables you to love my sheep the way that I've loved you. When you know that you're loved by Jesus, it becomes very easy to love people, even the ones that are more difficult to love, because you are not loving out of your own strength or your own energy. You are loving out of an overflow of how deeply loved by God you are. And I'm telling you, this is essential to your life as a Christian, that you live with the identity of I am God's beloved. I'm the one who the Father loves, who sent His Son, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And Peter went from the apostle of comparison to the apostle of compassion. And do you realize that when Peter died, Peter was going to die. And he has so been broken from that thing of comparison and trying to measure up that the way that he's going to die is by crucifixion. And as he's going to be crucified, you know what he says? This is a historical fact. He says, I don't want you to crucify me. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. He says, I'll ask that you crucify me upside down. And so they turned Peter upside down and they crucified him upside down as he gave his life for Jesus. He had a new identity. He knew how loved that he was. He was healed. He knew the Father's love. And here's the thing. You need to know that you are God's child. That you are chosen. That you're washed that you're cleansed, that you're now holy and blameless in His sight, that He's not asking you to accomplish one more thing for Him. He's not asking you to do something to earn a, a right standing. He's saying, if you believe in me and you've turned from sin, you, you are my child. You are the one that I love. I have given you my approval, and I want you to rest in that love and let me pour that so deeply into your heart that it transforms who you are. And you're so filled with my love for you that it overflows on everybody else. That's the only way to live the Christian life. Amen. Well, I want us to pray. We're, we're actually going to take communion together this morning, but as they get those baskets ready, would you just bow your heads with me and let's just have a moment of prayer here together. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your love. And I pray, God, that if there's anybody in here that has not encountered that love that you have for them, that this morning you would just open their hearts to that reality. And Lord Jesus, they would come to believe in that love and receive it and know that Jesus, when you died on the cross, you died for their sins so that not only they could be saved, but they could be reconciled to a father whose arms are wide open and has always been longing for communion and intimacy with them. So Holy Spirit, have your way in every heart this morning. 
and let your work be done to set people free from false identities so that we can know just who we are in you, that we are your beloved, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.